Welcome to Season 4 of Writers' Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, Canada's festival of ideas since 1997. Thank you for supporting authors and booksellers and each other. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation between the festival's Neil Wilson and Patrick McCabe, the Booker Prize shortlisted author of The Butcher Boy and Breakfast on Pluto. Patrick's latest, Pogue Mahone, is an epic reinvention of the verse novel. It is the telling of one family's history and the forces seen and unseen that make their fate. Or, in the words of a review in The Guardian, if you're looking for this century's Ulysses, look no further than Patrick McCabe's Pogue Mahone. We begin with a taste of the text, then their conversation. Oh, yeah. That's what they'll tell you. That the women are worse than the men by far. Whether or not that's true, I'm sorry I have to say that I do not know. But I'll tell you this. Yes, this one thing I'll tell you, that it certainly is when it comes to our Una. For this long time past, she has been literally putting me astray in the head. With no matter where you go, it's Dan, Dan, Dan. Yeah, Dan this, Dan that, Dan the other. Every hour of the blurmer. Ah, but she's not the worst of them. She's not the worst of them all the same, not by a long shot. With some of the specs she comes out with, making you howl with the laughter. Get out of me way! She crows. And away off with her then, swinging around the corner. Don't talk to me about the new Caledonia and funky inner cosmonauts, she calls back. Dismissing me with an impatient wave. Now don't be annoying me. For I'm off on my travels to get myself a cup of tea. <laughs> a sweet, wee, tasty cuppa. So let me be hearing no more about it. Hey, you, get over here, you, she says the other day. You, get the frig on over, do you hear? Is it true that only just this morning you were up in London? Hmm. Yeah, it is, is it? What of it, anyway? She turns and lets out this outlandish yelp, making a swipe at a crock of flowers, in the process causing a near riot in the lobby. The staff from all angles come running out of breath. You trying to ruin our reputation, one of them says, with a bit of a nervous laugh. Are you trying to ruin our reputation? Ah, but for all our disagreements, I didn't think that we'd ever end up where we did. No. That is to say, beyond in Limehouse Basin, tossing canvas bags over the parapet of a bridge, Shivering there together in the cold East London dawn, with a pair of us awestruck, petrified, 
beneath the red sky spanning Jerusalem, watching leopards with the wings of eagles gliding into land over a body of water already on fire. I mean, you wouldn't, would you? But somehow, that's how it always tends to be with Aruna. That's how it always seems to end up. Oh, amazing. Patrick, thank you so much. That's from the, the opening, of course. And um, it's Una Fogarty and uh, her brother, of course, um, Dan Fogarty. This is basically... Um, I guess it's a free verse monologue poem. And you you said in a recent interview that you didn't start off writing it in this manner. You you started it as a typical uh narrative chapter book, chapter driven book. I mean the form of it, but you were very unsatisfied and you almost scrapped it. How, yeah. what process, how did you save it? Well, in a way that's not unusual for me, Neil, you know, um, I often start very traditionally, you know, and see what the story is. If there is a story, there isn't always, but mostly there is. And, uh, it's almost like drilling down into the subconscious to kind of determine what the nature of the mood, the feeling that you're having, the striving you towards whatever story it might be. And there are always disparate elements. In this case, there was a notion of uh, displacement, a notion of parody. You know, some elements of it are very close to parody of the melodramatic um, dramas of the ninth of the the 19th century by Dion Boucico and uh, but that shades always as it does in my imagination eccentric as it would appear to be into the trash horror movies of the mid 1960s such as you know uh, Roger Corman's adaptations of Edgar Allan Poe stories whether it be the mask of the red death or the curse of the crimson altar or some such and also comic books and all the rest of it. Basically, the culture of the degraded image, if you know what I mean. Mm. Uh, be, because uh, in my boyhood, the kind of elements of Irish history, they were often um, rendered in uh, Catholic comic books like Our Boys and various things like that. And I used to kind of really like the, uh, the, the sort of almost Jack B. Yeats woodcuts that accompanied those. And there was always a kind of a little bit of a difference in the depiction of the North and the South in that Places like in the South, in my imagination anyway, like say Kerry, for example, you would have images of the Connor Pass, which would be wild and windswept and almost almost hysterically Baroque, you know, and then further to the North, then you'd have everything like Presbyterian, splintered, pared down, the language being the same. So in my imagination, there was, wasn't so much a war as a crazy dance between these various cultures going on. And... Uh, as I kind of accessed a lot of this stuff, um, what became apparent was that also English culture was, was entering the frame. English culture, by which I mean um, the culture that I had experience of in the early 70s, uh, the notion of exile and 
when I went to London first, you would go to a bar called Ward's, where you would see the, the older immigrants from the 1940s, the post-war generation, cheek by jowl with the new beatnik 70s generation. And often you would find yourself standing beside a guy maybe in an Afghan coat with a huge mane of hair and aviator shades, and it would turn out that he was drinking with an older man who had a ruddy face and a beat-up suit, but they were great friends because this hippie would be Jimmy Johnny Murphy's son, you see. And so there was a kind of a cultural link there. Uh, and I had access to both. I had the access to the older world and the access to the newer world. So it's a long roundabout way of saying that as these elements became apparent, it, it also became evident that a standard traditional chapter-based narrative was not going to contain them. They were, they were too alive. They were too, uh, too uh, sort of, it was like a skyrocket going off, really. Tell us a little bit, <clears throat> Patrick, about the Mahavishnu Temple, this incredible meeting place in London in the mid-70s, early mid-70s, where these amazingly colorful, eccentric characters met. How did this, where did this come from? Well, there were many such places uh, uh, in the cities. I'm sure you had them in Canada and America as well at that time, or has the, the arrogance of youth, every generation has it, don't they? You know, they enter upon a new age of enlightenment and their parents know nothing, you know, and they've got all the new rules and they, they're going to remake the world in their own image. And um, they get a few years of delusion out of that and then, old mother nature comes striding in with all her horrors and you know the joysticks begin to fade and the you know the camaraderie becomes fractured and all the rest of it uh, as to some extent the Mahavishnu temple is a, simply a squat that's exaggerated and magnified it's an amalgam of many such places that I would have come and go, gone through I wouldn't necessarily have stayed very long at any of them but then nobody really did it was a transient population because you had a lot of these buildings that were, for one reason or another, in sort of legal limbo. So people would, you know, break in effectively and rig up their own electricity and, you know, hang out and be outside society, as they thought, you know. Well, they got a couple of years of that before reality kind of, um, I suppose, made its presence felt. But what I definitely didn't want to do was make, write some kind of some social history of that period, you know, because that has been done by better people than me. It was just the, the locus of, of the, um, the various forces uh, that, that were beginning to obsess me. And I suppose what they were, what ultimately this book is about, and it's not about the Irish in England, and although partly it is, but ultimately it's not about the Irish in England or about, um, I suppose the winter of discontent or English politics or Irish troubles or anything else. What it's really about the, the secret mysterious currents that govern everything and that we don't understand, which is why I suppose so much of it is taken up with uh, the presence of Alzheimer's, which was uh, occurring sadly to a, someone who was very close to me at the time of writing the book and began to, in its own mysterious way, weave its way like, tendrils of smoke through the narrative. Does it, you, you also, uh, Patrick, have 
a lot of just for want of a better word mystical features features that are quite prevalent in some irish folklore and some irish history and for me when i read from the beginning i i couldn't tell when the alzheimers came in and when you know some of these imaginings and appearances and disappearances and sounds and smells that seemed to come and go without any rhyme or reason were, you know, could have been spells that were cast on some of these characters rather than, you know, some indication of an early Alzheimer's. Well, I suppose I could answer that most directly by saying that when this person who was close to me became afflicted by this appalling illness. It occurred to me that as we preen ourselves in this so-called post-God, kind of post-religious almost, uh, era of so-called enlightenment, you know, where people will confidently and almost boastfully tell you, certainly in this country, that we are now in a zone where anything can be spoken about and that uh, people in former generations in their own country, implication being that they were almost too repressed or too ignorant to speak about mental illness. But now we can, every time you turn on a TV show, there's someone unburdening themselves of yet another, you know, affliction. And of course, these afflictions are, are to be taken very seriously. But what is not, it's a, in my mind, to be allowed the quarter it demands is the, uh, shall we say, the implication that people who lived before them, the dead effectively, mm. weren't, weren't, weren't as intelligent as they were. Well, they did talk about mental illness and they did talk very, very, very um, precisely about it, except they used metaphor and they recruited folklore. So. It seemed to me when I was engaged in dialogue, very fractured dialogue with the person I'm talking about, that had I lived 2,000 years ago, I would have said, this man is under a spell. There is something dreadful that has done. The world has become disordered. And there is no psychiatrist or no book that I have read about the illness that improves on that in a way. It, we, I knew as little at the end of my reading, in spite of all the advances we made in science, and God knows in medical Science, there have been extraordinary advances, but with the mind is an entirely different country. And I, I, I have no problem recruiting the treasures of folklore as an attempt to somehow apprehend what is happening to someone who three weeks before had been on his knees in a church before a crucifix and now looked up at a, it was like a sacred image almost while I was standing with him in the church. There was a rotunda on the roof, a kind of a crystal bowl and the sun was shining through it, and he said, what is that? And he was talking about the sky. And then he turned to the crucified Christ, and he said, who is he? This is someone who had spent 50 years, you know, reading from a missal, saints of the day, prayers, you know, the acts of the apostles. Who is he? What is that? 
That seems like very close to a spell to me. You're listening to Writers Festival Radio. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. We can't do this without your support. And now, back to the conversation. The name Fogarty, I understand, I recently discovered in an interview with you in Gaelic means exile. Is that correct? I think it also means outlaw. I think there's a couple of different uh, meanings for it, uh, but um, you don't really have to know that. I mean, it's these are just little grace notes, but uh, yeah, I think that is true. But even if it weren't, you know, Fogarty is is a name that's common in a lot of these 19th century kind of things that I started off with. And uh, there's also a nice kind of outlaw ring to it. There's a lyrical beat to it, you know, and for me, language and the beat of language is everything. You know, what happens in the story ultimately, while it's important to the reader, it's not as important to me in a way. And what I want to really capture is, is, is the kind of, the thrum and the beat and the percussion of, 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 of the language. and Sometimes it gets me into problems with, 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 with reviewers, maybe, or people I talk to, in that there's an anxiety in the modern world to nail everything down in an almost social realistic manner. And they say, okay, so they're in a, hospital, they're in a care home, right? And she's, she's, his, bro- she's his sister. And he's, what age is he? So I say, well, yeah, 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 these things are important, but they're not as important. For example, it's a bit like, oh, we went to see Swan Lake. You know, what's the plot of Swan Lake? Sit down and tell me what the plot is. Well, I'm not really interested in what the plot is, but I am interested in how the ballerina soars and how she lands on her feet and how she swings with her partner and all the rest of it. And uh, ultimately, you see, what I really get animated about, if I do get animated when talking about more, is like, what are the mysteries contained within this story? Why are they there? Because sometimes I don't know. I don't know why it was said in a coastal care home. I have no relationship with Margate. I have been there, but there's no blood tied to it. There is no real reason why it should be there or Ramsgate or Blackpool or anywhere else, but it had to be. Talking about uh, soaring music and uh, language and the beat, would you mind, uh, Patrick, turning to page 389? This is where we meet Troy McClory, uh, it, it, for the first time, or at least in a very real way. With that poetic turn of phrase he had, and the capacity to relate a story from beginning to end, hold the attention of the audience around a table, with, at his best, something of the shaman about him, a distinctive word weaver and spinner of yarns, with a lot of it inherited from his old mentor, Douglas McVitie, and which I think we would have to acknowledge that by and large it's a skill that's fast disappearing, or at least under threat in these contemporary times of digital explosions and fiber optic overload. 
where throughout this past decade, there's been an unprecedented blitz of information. And without maybe realizing it, we are living underneath the punishing weight of endless data and noise and social media sound bites and selfies, the almost unbearable burden of immediate and proximate stimuli, but not Troy McClory. Oh no, not the Scotsman from the 1970s, when all of this would have been the stuff of fiction, which even his mentor, the professor, Mr. McVitie, could not even have begun to dream of, crinkling up his eyes as off went that good old Scotty again. Yes, Troy McClory waving the joint as he swore blue blind that this latest yarn he was spinning to them was true. And which he could assure them of, because none other than Ray Davis of the group the Kinks had told it to him. Yeah, man, I swear this happened. I'm telling you, when our band would be coming from a gig up in Leeds driving along the M1, with Ray still dressed in his bozo hat, his bozo hat and bells, man, I swear. Still with his face paint, got up as a clown. Baggy trousers, turned up shoes, same as they'd been wearing on stage. When, I kid you not, what goes and happens? Doesn't he go and get a heart attack? You got to get me to your hospital, says Troy. Oh, what a joke that was. With the singer on the table, being examined in his circus slap. I'm afraid we were going to lose him, says the sergeant. And that's where the famous song originated, you see, Troy McClory continued to explain. But not only that, he picked up his guitar and started to charm the birds and Aruna, and indeed everyone who happened to be present at the table that morning, swaying from side to side with his song about clowns and runaway circus fleas. It was a terrific rendition, it has to be said. Mm. You know, this refers a little bit to what you were speaking about earlier, um, about how, I don't know if it's partly to blame, if we can, you know, uh, blame the, uh, the social media, the our obsession with information, and with, of course, information comes false information and, you know, quasi-truth. We can make up our own truth. Yeah. But this, this piece of music you've written is certainly an antidote to that. I hope so. And it's, it's sorely needed. I mean... Well, you... I mean, if I had achieved nothing at all, or if I even came close to that, it would gratify me greatly. And I really do mean that because I think it's needed. I genuinely well, do. Well, it seems that, uh, you know, and I, I don't want to get down on, on, on publishers. We deal with a lot of uh, world-class uh, publishers and a lot of young people. We have our Republic of Childhood part of the festival where we try to engage 
children and youth in writing and reading and critical thinking, but it's an uphill climb. I understand. And I, I don't know, there's no way we can put that genie in the bottle, but the way you've woven this, you know, these strands, these various musical themes, um, you're creating an alternative for us, a very attractive alternative. And I'm hoping that young people who may not be interested <laughs> as much as you and I and our generation was in reading might become infected with this uh, family story. Mm. We're living in very interesting times, but then people are always living in interesting times. But the pace of change has accelerated so much that it's very, very difficult to kind of read a moving, it's a moving object. But I've noticed that um, certainly in Ireland, as uh, shall we say, the first generation of the internet uh, people, say the millennials, as they get that little bit older, I have noticed uh, there's a sort of a growing, almost a psychedelic folk music scene in, in Dublin at the moment. And they are scrabbling around musical archives and trying to find out stuff that perhaps five years ago they wouldn't have been particularly interested in. And ultimately, the noise of social media will wane, I think, because it doesn't deliver in the long run. And I think we just got to be a little bit patient. Um, and, you know, there is an element to this book and other little pieces and, pe and people that I know of almost a guerrilla impertinence of, an un of a new underground. And um, I'm kind of comfortable in that zone. And, and it, mm. it's kind of, it almost sort of validates the way this book was published because uh, your listeners may not know, it's not, it's not presented by your traditional publisher. It's a crowdfunded venture, effectively, which is, is a, a tried and trusted method that was first patented in the 19th century by the likes of Mark Twain and uh, George Moore and various other people, which really means that they would come along and say, Neil, I've got this stonker of a book, it's 600 pages. And when I present it to traditional publishers, they say, oh my God, where is the audience for this? As they have done, not too much because they didn't really send it to very many, but there's a crafted kind of ennui now that greets anything that's out of the ordinary. And uh, they will tell you, oh, it's magnificent, writ magnificently written, but we don't know what to do with it. So I don't know if a plumber came to your house and said, you know, I'm terribly sorry, this is a magnificent heating system, but you know, and I've got wonderful tools, but I don't know what to do with them. So I really, I'd say, well, you really have to get back in your van and go home, won't you? But uh, that's unfortunately the world we're living in. And whenever John Mitchinson, the editor, read this book, you know, I wasn't looking for praise or I wasn't looking for any kind of support. I was, I was just nervous that, that it would be totally misunderstood. And it wasn't. He understood it perfectly. And he comes from a scholarly kind of 
folklore background himself. He knows a lot about Chaucer and Middle English and all that kind of stuff, which is kind of a, I have a kinship with, have no knowledge of. But um, he said, I'll publish this, and this is the way we're going to do it. So the, the, the subscription model then linked with the guerrilla impertinence of the imagination, which is, first of all, presenting a book in, uh, you know, iambic pentameter for 110,000 words is, is, in this day and age, a little bit cheeky, certainly. But so is the idea of, let's put the show on right here, folks, you know, which is a bit like what we did. And all my friends and people I've never met and never will meet and never, but they took great pleasure in ownership of a work of art. And do not mistake it, no matter how under, you know, assault it may seem, art, as religion will in time, I think, be seen to be in a different form, it's too deep in people to, to be destroyed. Yes, and, and, and John Mitchinson also, didn't he um, edit uh, Dermot Healy, who's been at our festival a couple of times? Dermot Healy was a great friend of mine. Um, and John Mitchinson did, did indeed edit his books. Um, I like to think that Dermot Healy is looking down benignly oh. on this particular project. And he's got the beard too, just like yeah. you think right now. Yeah. Probably. He, was a, he, was a, he was a tremendous... Um, high-voltage spirit, Dermot Healy, and we all miss him greatly. We do indeed. You also say that this is, you You think this is your finest creation, your, your lit, finest literary creation, and it's it, it, it had a purifying effect. And if I can quote, you talk about the right reasons for writing that maybe get lost in, you know, as you get seduced by the publishing machine and get advances and all of this, you say, the major corporations no longer have the power over my imagination. I'm not at loggerheads with you, but you don't own me and you're not going to. Could you speak a little bit about that? How? How this is might well, change. I wouldn't. I wouldn't like this to appear in any way combative. No, uh, because um, the major publishing firms of which I speak, there they've been very kind to me in the past. Oh yeah, and so so have all. Yes, and so have all the so have all the editors I worked with. What I'm really referring to there is the the imperatives of of global capitalism. You know, which has a spread its, you know, tendrils right across the world and that everything is judged now by its commercial value. And unfortunately, you know, I'm only too aware that a 110,000 word book written in iambic pentameter is not going to have them screaming down in, the, you know, the major bookstores of New York or Ottawa, so we must have this, this is an essential tool. But, um, the great danger is that, you, you know, the eccentricities of voice and the marginal voices, and I think it is happening. For example, we don't hear that many writers from the north of England, for example, any longer. That seems to have kind of, and that's a, a, a culture that's, you know, valid and, and you know, individual in, in so many ways. And that was a very big influence on me as I was young, beginning to write, you know, Stan Barstow and Alan Silito and all those people. 
And I know these people are still writing, but is it because we have a metropolitan-centric thing and, uh, you know, there's just a danger that um, writers will find it very hard to make a living as much as anything else. And uh, it's bad enough not being able to make a living, but when you're actually, it's actually been suggested to you that this is what you should write, have you got any other ideas as a common one? You've just, <laughs> like, you know... You've just finished a book that spent you spent three years on, and this crafted sort of response of weary, sort of uh, tiredness, ennui. Mm, this is interesting. In fact, they might even say it's a masterpiece, but then they would say, have you got any other ideas? Which is a bit of a puzzle to me. As if it were a recipe. Yes, indeed. That you just picked up one morning and said, okay, yeah. Add a little bit of salt, or a couple of eggs, some flour, and boom, you've got Pogue Mahone. I think so, yeah. I mean, uh, that does seem to be a growing sort of a response, and uh, there's no apology for it on their side. So yeah. let, let me make it very clear that I've absolutely no axe to grind with anybody in a very good, but I really must protect. I really must protect for my own sanity, uh, you know, the purity of what it is I, I, I feel. I was intended to do. Well, I, I have a feeling that just as, uh, you know, Joyce's uh, Ulysses, which of course we're celebrating the 100th anniversary, of course, this year, this masterpiece, that wasn't well received. Uh, for, well, he had to publish uh, it himself. Selby yeah. Beach published it for him. Nobody would touch it. Mind you, there were other reasons for that. I mean, everybody forgets just how small a city Dublin was. And the reason, one of the reasons, outside of the whole literary schmozzle, one of the reasons that Joyce couldn't come back to Dublin was there were about a dozen libel writs waiting for him. <laughs> you know, he had libeled some of the most uh, influential people in the city, you know, Gogarty and Cusack and all these people. So he literally, you know, let's be real about it. You go around, you know, in your own time, you know, implying this and that about influence, you're going to get into trouble. And uh, that's one of the reasons people wouldn't publish it as well, I'm sure. Patrick, you say, uh, of course, the role of, of music in Pogue Mahone, like uh, you have commented uh the role of music in, in Joyce as well. You, you say in Pogue Mahone, the beat of the book is set by the appearance of an old Irish Scottish folk song called the Killiburn Bray, which is accompanied by a hand drum or the boron. Yeah. That's incredible. You, Why? Pardon me? Why do you think it's incredible? Well, this, I, I, I'm certainly not aware of this song. I'm, I'm aware of many, many... You know, the, uh, the Irish Rovers are a, an Irish-Canadian band. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, and it's that particular version. There are many versions of it, but the one I was using for the Irish was that of the Irish Rovers. I don't know where, what city in Canada they operated in, but they are Irish-Canadian, as far as I know. I think Toronto. Toronto, okay. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that, it's a terrific spirited rendition of it. I love it. It's really marvelous. And as soon as I got it, the whole book exploded. It was just marvelous to find it. And you often wonder, if I hadn't found that song, what sort of a book it would be? I don't know. Maybe no book. Wow. 
Patrick, I'd like you to finish um, your readings, if if I may ask you to turn to page 578. And this is toward the end. And we see Una um, resting there in the wheelchair. Una subsumed in her own personal, private world. Resting there in the wheelchair beneath the apple tree. Pulling her fluffy woolen cardigan tight around her shoulders and returning to yet another special day in Brondesbury, one representing what had to be the most memorable and proudest day of her life. When the investigating officer, a sniffy type for sure, and not at all old-fashioned and gentlemanly like Inspector Cockrell from Green for Danger, he had arrived in the temple and within minutes had already made a number of less than magnanimous asides, not only as regards the appearance of Una Fogarty, but also the reputation of her country, background and family. And just what it was one might be inclined to expect from them, meaning the Irish, the Gales, those bog trotters, as he described them, who come over here to live off the community, making sick they do. He said that as they prepared to leave. Only to find his way barred by none other than Troy McClory, who had emerged from the middle of the shamefully cowed assembly and stood right there on the threshold in an unmistakable attitude of defiance, suggesting, in fact, that the officer concerned, he might consider having a modicum of decency and withdraw unreservedly the remarks he had made, and withdraw unreservedly the remarks he had just and quite disgracefully made which Troy further categorized as wholly racist and entirely despicable. And beneath the office of someone who described himself as a servant of the people. And just watching him do that, utter those few simple sentences, not only on her behalf, but that of her countrymen, it had amounted to nothing other than the single most uplifting moment of Una Fogarty's life. Almost sacred, he thought. Especially when she heard him repeat later on that he didn't give a damn what anyone thought, the police or anyone else. Because what's right is right, and people are people, whether Catholic or Protestant. Gentile or Jew, English or fucking Irish. That is all, he concluded, there is to it. Yes, that was what he had done without prompting. And with no prospect of any personal gain, proudly and on her behalf stood his ground. 
simply because that was the type Troy McClory was. And deep down, Una knew that. Always had. Wow. One of the most beautiful, beautiful pieces in the entire book. And I like the way deep down she knew that, comma, always had. It's just like an, I don't know, an extra beat, maybe from the yeah. board. I don't know. It just, it. You no, know, no, you're right. You're right. The, the book, this book is full of those little things because, you know, what time are we in? There's something epochal about it, you know? And the, the, the hollow uh, after, after thump of the, the bow run always has that kind of quality, you know? But I do like that piece because, uh, a flaw on my part would have been to set up Troy McClory, you know, as a, I guess, triumphalist, uh, you know, almost superior patronizing figure. In fact, he's a very decent kid. He just happens to be young. They're all young, you see. He's only 23. But there's good stuff in there, and she knew that. So when the authorities come, he sh- he displays moral courage and redeems himself. Oh, Patrick, this is a, a remarkable achievement. Thank you so You're much. You're so kind. You're so kind. Oh, not at all. And uh, we're going to do everything we can here at our festival and our contacts to make sure that this book and the, 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 the new way, or not so new way, but the contemporary way of, of publishing um, can encourage more people to write for the real reasons they want to write and and to avoid the pitfall that we see so often in in contemporary you know market driven publishing and that is the problem really market driven it's not i mean i i like popular fiction as much as everyone else you know i'm a great thriller reader you know i i read anything but the market is not the only thing we rot. You know, we really do owe it to ourselves and our children and all the rest of it to keep this fire going. Because uh, you know, I need all the help too. You know, and it's great that you're saying these things because I do really appreciate it, and I think it's necessary. Actually, you know, I can't do. I can't, you know, scratch away on my own like some mouse in the attic, hoping. I, you know, I, I want. I, I want to re- reach as many people too. You know, but not for the market reason. I, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us. And I know we're going to have a lot of good, positive feedback. And I hope we can stay in touch. And who knows, maybe our paths might cross again. Well, I hope they do, Neil. And it's very nice of you to ask me on the show. That was Neil Wilson in conversation with Patrick McCabe on his remarkable new novel in verse, Pogue Mahone, published in Canada by Biblioasis. Thanks to all our patrons, volunteers, and donors. And thanks to the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Ottawa Public Library, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay, Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening.